listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. Wow, do we have a treat for you tonight, but I'm not going to spoil it. Let's go over the week in review first. On Sunday, we revisited the 10-minute mystery of airships, spotted in the 1890s, well before airships were invented. On Wednesday, Mike and Dan brought you the fantastic episode of Famous Songs with Ties to Ohio. If you haven't given Ohio Mysteries Backroads a listen yet, make sure you tune in every Wednesday at 8 p.m. Now, if you would like to support our podcast, the best way is to like, follow, tell a friend, or a family member. Another great way is to consider becoming a Patreon member. Head on over to patreon.com slash Ohio Mysteries. Now, let's throw another log on the fire, campers. Let's dig up a new Ohio mystery. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with us as always is our award-winning journalist who spent 30-plus years with the Akron Beacon Journal telling stories just like this one, Paula Schleiss. Hi, everybody. If you've been an Ohio Mysteries listener for a while, you probably heard the beginning of the story and the middle of the story. Tonight, we're excited to tell you we can now share the end of the story. Back in 2020, we did an episode on the case of Mary Jane Van Gilder, a West Virginia mom who disappeared from Richland County, Ohio during World War II and whose family had never given up hope of finding out what happened to their matriarch. They found an ally in Shelby Police Detective Adam Turner, who, despite the age of this cold case, dove in and spent more than five years trying to figure out what happened to the woman. He had three bodies exhumed trying to find her. And a couple of months ago, we did a second story on this topic, what I call the middle, because one of those bodies Detective Turner had exhumed in Preble County ended up being identified. So we did a story on that surprising case. We'll put links to both of these previous episodes in our episode notes. Well, this month, Detective Turner announced he could finally close the books on the nearly 80-year-old mystery. The fate of Mary Jane Van Gilder was discovered, and thanks in part to an amateur sleuth who spotted a clue in a document and forwarded it to Detective Turner. So, This story is a victory all around, not only for Detective Turner, who I can't say enough about, but hey, it's a win for crowdsourcing and those true crime fans who roll up their sleeves and try to help solve some of these ancient mysteries. Now, before we get to the solution in this fascinating case, let's go back and recall the story, the life, the disappearance of Mary Jane Van Gilder. Mary Jane Van Gilder was born Mary Jane Croft in 1911 in Montana, West Virginia. Her parents were John and Anna Croft, and she was the fourth of eight siblings. In 1929, at the age of 17, and just a few weeks before the Great Depression hit, she married James Wesley Van Gilder and began her own family. 
By the time World War II broke out in 1941, Mary Jane had five living children, Barbara, Anna Mae, Cheryl, Louise, and Jimmy. Mary Jane and James raised their children on a farm in Marion County, West Virginia. That's about 70 miles east of the Ohio River. But it was a troubled marriage. Mary Jane would allege her husband was an alcoholic and abusive, and she began an affair with a man who worked on the family farm. The affair even produced a child, the little girl she named Cheryl, and James Van Gilder knew the child wasn't his. Still, they remained together on the farm for another two years, until one day, Mary Jane moved out, leaving her children behind. She went to the nearest city, the Marion County seat of Fairmont, and rented an apartment above the old Fairmont Theater. She found work there. Her eldest daughter, Anna Mae Rager, who was nearly 90 years old when she talked to Detective Turner a few years ago, said she didn't know what precipitated her mom leaving when she did. Her dad refused to talk about it, so as kids, they just accepted that their mother was living somewhere else. At some point, Anna Mae recalled that her mother did try to reunite the family and suggested they all move in with her in Fairmont. But her husband, James, rejected the idea. Then, in March of 1944, Mary Jane's family was shocked to get a letter from her with an Ohio postmark. She wasn't in Fairmont, West Virginia anymore. Mary Jane had picked up and moved to Plymouth, Ohio. That's in Huron County, a good five-hour drive by today's standard. She had taken a job there at the Wilkins Army Air Force Depot in nearby Shelby, Ohio. That's in Richland County, halfway between Cleveland and Columbus. The depot was set up to produce munitions and make plane parts to help the war effort, and Mary Jane joined a force that is often collectively called Rosie the Riveter. Those are the women who took typically male jobs in the factories, while the men were fighting overseas. Mary Jane entered her new life as a forklift operator. At some point during her employment, records show she was struck by an airplane propeller, which left scars on her shoulder. She stayed in Ohio, but she also stayed in touch with her children, including daughter Anna May. Anna May, who was 13 when her mom left, said her mom sent home letters and clothes. She also sent her some war bonds she had purchased. War bonds were ways for people to invest in the military and help fund the Allies in their fight against Germany and Japan. But then, in early 1945, as World War II was coming to an end, Mary Jane wrote Anna Mae and asked to have those war bonds sent back to her. Anna Mae did. In February of 1945, Mary Jane filed for divorce from her husband. Anna Mae wrote her mom with questions, what was going on? But she never got an answer. Letters she sent to her mom that spring and summer came back marked return to sender. 
an indication her mom had moved and left no forwarding address. Anna May never heard from her mother again. Mary Jane was 34 years old at the time. A few months after Mary Jane filed for divorce in Ohio, James Van Gilder filed for divorce himself in West Virginia. Mary Jane never responded to the filing, and James was granted his divorce as well as custody of the five children in November of 1945. There is a family story, a little short on detail, that after the war ended, Mary Jane's brother, Lester Croft, returned from his service in the Navy and that he and James Van Gilder went to Ohio to find Mary Jane. And they did. They found her and communicated with her. But Anna Mae said she was never told what happened during that visit. There is one final court record that indicates Mary Jane was alive and probably still living around the Shelby area five months after the divorce was finalized in West Virginia, because that's when her own divorce filing in Ohio was withdrawn. According to the court record, the plaintiff had requested it. So the date on that court record, the last evidence that Mary Jane was alive, became her official date as a missing person. It was April the 4th, 1946. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not, it's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because... The news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily. Mary Jane's children all grew up and had children of their own, making Mary Jane a grandmother of children she would never know. But they hadn't forgotten about her. In 1949, daughter Anna Mae began searching for her mom again. The sheriff in Marion County, West Virginia, wrote to the police chief in Plymouth, Ohio, and tried to find out what he could. That letter is in Anna Mae's collection, although we don't know if the Plymouth chief ever wrote him back. In May of 1952, now this is six years after Mary Jane disappeared, Anna Mae did finally get a letter from the Army Depot where her mom had worked. They wrote, Mrs. Van Gilder left our employ on 8 March 1945 due to additional household duties. Her address at the time of her resignation was 2 Truck Street, Plymouth, Ohio. Prior to her residence at the above address, she resided at 311 Woodland Avenue, Willard, Ohio. Now, it's quite likely Mary Jane knew her days at the depot were numbered. The war was ending, and the depot had already let employees know that cutbacks were coming. But did she leave for another reason? Now, she resigned the same time she was filing for divorce and asking for those war bonds to be sent back to her. And she had a new address. 
All of those clues, combined with that work note about her resigning due to additional household duties, made her family wonder if she was getting remarried. Is that why she fell off the face of the planet? Did she get a new name, start a new life, and was willing to leave her first family behind? Or was Mary Jane the victim of foul play? Anna May wrote the FBI, addressing its director, J. Edgar Hoover. But Hoover wrote back, saying it wasn't an FBI case, that she needed to rely on local law enforcement. Anna May wrote the Social Security Administration, but couldn't get a number to help track her mom. She wrote the U.S. Treasury Department. They confirmed the war bonds were cashed in a bank in Plymouth, but had no other information. And she wrote the Ohio State Highway Patrol, which did a brief investigation and found somebody who recalled seeing Mary Jane back in 1945, but nothing to explain her whereabouts after April of 1946. As Mary Jane's grandkids grew up, they joined Aunt Anna Mae in wanting to know what happened. And then, in 2004, their efforts actually netted a story they didn't have before. The Plymouth Journal in Ohio wrote a story about the family search, and they heard from a man named William King, who lived in Willard. King said his father and two brothers also worked at the Army Air Force Depot in the 40s. And while he was only 13 years old at the time, he recalled Mary Jane as being a friend of the family. He talked about her long, dark hair, how she was a cheerful person. Because she didn't drive, his family often gave her a ride to work. He recalled a story about a very bad snowstorm in the winter of 44, when the roads became impassable. A whole line of cars got stuck two miles from Plymouth, and the motorists had no choice but to abandon their cars and walk to town. William recalled the story of how his dad was walking with Mary Jane, and she was so cold she kept wanting to sit down. He and others had to keep encouraging her to stay on her feet and keep walking until they got to town safely. It was nice for the family to get another story about their mom and grandma, but once again, King had no idea what happened to her after that. Mary Jane's family had one more card to play. In 2018, her granddaughter, Mindy Wilson, contacted Shelby Police Chief Lance Combs to try and stimulate interest there, since that was the town where Mary Jane worked. Incredibly, rather than dismiss a 73-year-old case with no evidence of a crime, Chief Combs passed it on to an intrepid young detective, Adam Turner, who started spending hours of his own time looking for Mary Jane Van Gilder. Turner said his empathy came from growing up above his family's funeral home and hearing stories of grief and loss daily. 
He understood the pain of living in limbo, no body to bury, no closure that comes from having a grave and a chance to say goodbye. Turner spent the next few years writing dozens of letters to coroner's offices, police departments, newspapers, libraries. The fact that he could not find a social security number or any record of Mary Jane's death, he began to think foul play was a real possibility. It was hard to imagine her living a full life without ever once attempting to reach out to her five children. So Officer Turner went to the National Missing and Unidentified Person Systems Database, NAMUS for short, which seeks to link unidentified remains to reports of missing people. Could Mary Jane be hidden in one of the thousands of Jane Doe's across the country? He sifted through the database looking for descriptions that might match Mary Jane He ended up exhuming three bodies so he could get DNA to try and match it to Mary Jane's relatives. But each time, it didn't. What turned the tide in this case was when Detective Turner obtained Mary Jane's military file and published it online. It was just one of more than a hundred documents Turner had collected in his search. But, as fate would have it, this past November, a civilian sleuth who did not want to be identified was looking over the file and noticed a name on page 17. She brought it to Detective Turner's attention. When Mary Jane was promoted to high-lift fork operator, she took the position from a man named Percy L. Sebrin. He likely trained her for the job, Turner figured. His name was among dozens in the file, but leaving no stone unturned, Turner searched all of them, including Percy Sebrin. He found him on the website findagrave.com. Percy died in Kansas City, Missouri in 1969 when he was run over and killed by a train. But then Turner saw this. Sebron was buried in Forest, Louisiana with his wife, a woman named Mary J., who was born in 1911. The couple had two sons, one born in 1945, about nine months after Mary Jane quit her job at the Wilkins Depot, and another two years later, in 1947, the family had lived most of their lives in Arkansas. Turner couldn't find a marriage certificate for the couple, but he was able to track down one of the Sebrin's granddaughters. And that woman, Bobby Sebrin, provided Detective Turner with photos of her grandma from the late 70s and early 80s. She couldn't offer much more than that, however. The woman told Turner she didn't recall anyone discussing her grandma's early life. But there was too much here to be ignored. Frankly, it's hard not to see the likeness between Mary Jane Van Gilder of 1945 and Mary J. Sebron of the 1970s. Turner even acquired a document with Mary J. Sebron's signature. 
It sure looked like Mary Jane Van Gilder's handwriting. Well, there was only one way to be sure. A DNA test was taken and made it official. The two women, the Mary Jane with a family in West Virginia and the Mary J who had raised a second family in Arkansas, were one and the same. Mary Jane died from colon cancer in 1990. According to the grandchildren from the second family, she was a perfect grandma. She loved to cook, loved to garden, drank a lot of sun tea. But there are questions that can never be answered. At a press conference this month, Detective Turner said this of the loved ones that Mary Jane left behind. As you can imagine, this disclosure has been very painful for them. Additionally, the Seabrins also have been experiencing the gamut of emotions because their grandma never told them who she really was and misled them about her past. Still, Mindy Wilson, that granddaughter from Mary Jane's first family, is happy to finally know what happened and that her Aunt Anna May's decades-long effort finally came to fruition. Mindy Wilson said she went to Louisiana to put flowers on her grandma's grave This gives me some kind of peace and brings me closer to a woman I never met, she said. Equally happy to have the file closed on this one was Detective Turner, for whom the case had absorbed half a decade. He wishes he knew why Mary Jane decided to leave her family and wonders how she could have lived her life never reaching out to them again. He said, What it shows is that our decisions can reverberate through time and distance and affect generations of our immediate family and descendants, and that our choices in life need to be made in consideration of how it will affect those who love us. He said, Mary Jane's absence left a hole in her children's and grandchildren's lives that was a continuous wound. Questions will always remain as to why she voluntarily vanished from their lives. But at last, the investigation into her disappearance can be, and is, officially closed. That's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news clippings, and more on this and every one of our episodes, check out ohiomysteries.com. You might be surprised to know that not all serial killers are straight, cisgender white men. And the victims of true crime are not a monolith either. She's Wendy and I'm Beth. And together we host Fruit Loops Serial Killers of Color, a true crime podcast. Together we take deep dives into the true crime stories about marginalized and minoritized perps and victims that often go untold. We also provide the context and nuance that these stories deserve. At Fruit Loops, we're serving up true crime with a side of history, society, culture, and some fun. Listen to Fruit Loops Serial Killers of Color on Spotify, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.